Hi, I'm Drew. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a general pediatrician in Tucson, Arizona with a large transgender medicine practice. And I'm Lizette. My pronouns are she, her, her. I'm a small business owner, advocate, and the mother of a 13-year-old transgender child. And this is season two of... I Stand By You. With Lizette. And Drew. Together, we talk about allyship. And this season, because we're all feeling very isolated, we're going to focus a little more on community, building community. And showing up for one another. Welcome. Welcome. For now. Excited to have our next guest on. Um, this is someone who uh, recently joined the practice that I'm at. Um, and you know what? I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Introduce yourself. This is Dr. Jamie Winand, a family medicine doctor. Cool. Thanks, Drew. Yeah. Um, so I was born and raised in Tucson, which is where we both work at El Rio. Um, and I am a family medicine doctor. And I'm openly transgender. I transitioned seven years ago. And yeah, I guess I'd start off with that. Awesome. Hey, you know what? I am gonna, I'm actually going to ask the same question I asked you the first time we talked about this. Like, so seriously, you came out while you were in medical school. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. I just, that was that really stressful? What was that like? Uh, yeah, I was really fortunate. So I went to Boston University, which is actually well known for being the very first medical school in the United States for women. So specifically in the 1800s, I think mid 1800s, like 1860, it opened up as just being a medical school for women only. And it wasn't until like 20 or 30 years later that they actually accepted men. So it was a very progressive school. It was also home to the first African-American male and female physicians, I believe, as well as the first Native American male physician in America. So really, really cool progressive history. So I think that's kind of why I went there as an openly gay person. And then while I was there, probably around my second year of school, I knew I wanted to transition. But again, I, I feel like I was really fortunate because I'm from Tucson, which has a lot of resources. But then I was in Boston, which has Finlay Health. And it was really, really, really seamless to get into Finlay Health and get care. And I had a lot of mentors in medical school who were very progressive and very, very um, helpful. And uh, the biggest thing about transitioning i feel is that it's a lot of logistical stuff like if you think about it it's like names and identifications and birth certificates and all of these things right yeah so um what what you need help with or what i needed help with was like all that logistical stuff so i needed people in high places in the medical school to be like we will change your name in this system in the school system even though it's going to take you you know six months to get your legal name changed in the massachusetts court system or whatever it took so having those people and this is probably true for any marginalized identity right having people in positions of power and leadership um, who were able to take care of that logistical stuff for me was like really really helpful so i feel really lucky that i went to a school where that was just their immediate response was how can we help you not trying to be a barrier to anything, if that makes sense. I always have to remind parents because, you know, they'll find people who are willing to help them. And then when I talk to them about discrimination, they're like, well, it's fine. And I was like, 
And I always have to be like, because luckily there was someone there that didn't put up a wall, right? Right. And so when you're talking about creating progress and change, you want it to be something that's systemic so that you're not relying on people to be kind enough to do it for you. And so I love that you were able to find those people. And then I just want to remind our listeners that while you were fortunate, I I think I was really fortunate in the school system with Daniel. Um, There are so many people that will, that will meet barriers who are just the people in power that won't help them along. And so Uh I'm, I think that's great that you had, such wonderful colleagues and teachers and staff members who are willing to help you with that. What did your classmates say? I'm curious. Oh my gosh. Medical school is such a mind trip to begin yes. with, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those singular experiences. Like, um, if you just really don't understand, I think until you go through it, like many challenging experiences, it's transformative. So, um, my classmates were really, really awesome. Again, it was you know, in Boston, so it was definitely a liberal environment. If someone had a problem with it, they certainly didn't let me know that. Um, the good thing about medical school is, you know, maybe this is commonplace now with Zoom, but back then, so when I first entered medical school, I think that was, what, about eight or nine years ago now, um, everything was still recorded pre-COVID. So I didn't actually have to physically go in person that much. So I had this, like, luxury of being a medical student where you do everything pretty much online, the remote recording lectures. And so I only had to go in person to classes like once a week. So a lot of like transitioning, if you're not out to people, is you know kind of awkward. Like, oh, like your voice is different and you look different and all of these things. And if you're not open with people, then it's kind of challenging. But again, I feel really blessed that I was in medical school, which even then pre-COVID was all on like Zoom or recorded so that you could watch the lectures double speed to then study for more time. <laughs> so, wow, that that postdates me. We we had people who took notes for each other if you weren't there. Same, <laughs> right. Same. It sounds so archaic. Now. Although I wasn't in medical school, but yes, we we did not have anything recorded or online. Oh, yeah, so then, and then I was worried about not... Oh. oh, go ahead. No, I was just wondering about, like, your med school curriculum. Was there any LGBT health in that? You know, BU prided themselves on being one of the places, BU being Boston University, one of the places that had the most LGBT curriculum, and it was four hours. Wow. So, yeah, over the four years. So that meant it was like an hour a year. And it was pretty good. They had a transgender lecture in endocrinology my second year. Um, there was an LGBT lecture my first year about sort of general LGBT health concerns. And then they tried to put a case here and there where the person would just happen to be LGBT. So B, BU was really progressive. So yeah, definitely was really fortunate. I remember though, I was definitely worried about passing like my name. So I picked my name gender neutral on purpose because I didn't know if I was going to pass or not. And I, I didn't really care if students weren't okay with me or teachers. Cause I was like, well, whatever, like it doesn't matter. I don't care if you like me or not. But what I didn't, know about was patients. So as a third year medical student, you're interacting with patients and the the school can't control, you know, I can report in offensive teachers or students, but the school can't control the reactions of patients. And so I purposely picked a gender neutral name um, because I didn't know how long it was going to take me to pass. And I didn't want patients to be uncomfortable. So if a patient couldn't figure out my gender, then my name was just, well, whatever gender they wanted it to be, it could be. So that's how I picked my name that was with like patient interactions in mind. Was it, yeah. may, may I ask, though, were you worried about, like, 
being misgendered and like how did you prepare for any stress that might bring on with patients absolutely like or were you kind of like this is a one-off I'm not going to see them again yeah no absolutely I was worried um I was fortunate that I think after about like six months so I I planned it so that I was started my physical transition at least six months before my clinical rotations knowing that oh I think by six months my voice will drop and I'll be more masculine and appearing I think there's a chance that I could pass that's how like that in my brain and sure enough that was the case so by that point I was masculine enough that I was passing and so um it was okay so most I don't think I was misgendered by patients at that point again I was just lucky I know sometimes it takes longer to pass with different things but I think once the voice drops (laughs) people in society you know they hear a deep voice and they think male and so, you know, and I cut my hair short. So I was, I was lucky. And Dr. Drew, what, yes. what would you both like? Dr. Winan said there was only four hours of LGBTQ curriculum over the years in med school. And I know, Dr. Cronin, you've said this repeatedly, that there needs to be more, like more expanded education. What are like the yeah. top three that you would like to see taught in like med schools, like extensively? You know what, if I were to pick, I honestly, I would like to see there should be at least a one semester, probably a one year long class in every med school on marginalized populations. Um, And they would need to figure out a way to teach it. So it wasn't like, you know, this is, this is LGBT week. This is Latinx week, but something where you could really get to the concept of what it means to be marginalized and how that affects your health and how to change those disparities of health. Mm-hmm. So are I you, can do it in one year long class. Yes, I agree. I don't know if you all are familiar with the Institute for um, the IHI healthcare improvement. I think it yeah. is yeah. by Don Brewerick. Yeah. They have some videos. If you've seen them, Drew, they are so good. They go into all of the, you know, socioeconomic different factors that play into someone's health in kind of a really nuanced way that's not like, like you said, that tokenization of today we talk about the gay people day <laughs> and that yeah. kind of thing. Like it's really nuanced and gets into, okay, you know, Billy is coming into the clinic with asthma over and over again. Why is he having exacerbations? Oh, he lives in an area where there's cockroaches and there's all these triggers and he lives in an area, you know, that's um, more impoverished, et cetera. And like, this is why his health is this way. And it's that idea of upstream medicine and that we need to take care of people, you know, as a whole person and, and, and including the communities that they come from, et cetera, and that that's going to improve their health, not just this reactive individualized where you're just not, you don't have enough willpower for your diabetes kind of thing. And I think that makes you a better doctor regardless. And that is even more true, I think, for marginalized populations that, you know, people may not be immediately familiar with some of the needs of those communities or the experiences of those. Do you find... Yeah, but at least you would think, but at least you could think like, oh, this is a population that I need to listen closely to. Right. Just having that message. Do you find that the concept of medical bias and teaching doctors how to navigate their own biases is something that's like extensively covered? Or do you feel like that should be a priority? (laughs) 
do you want to, you can answer that one. You've been a student more recently than I have. Yeah, I was going to say, it's getting better and better. And the reason I can say that is because I, I volunteer, well, I do some like per diem work at Burrell College of Medicine, which is an osteopathic school in Las Cruces, which is where I did my residency. And some of the classes that they are having are so nuanced. I mean, completely talking about those ideas and, um, you know, very much getting away from this idea of cultural competency and really hitting home the idea of cultural humility, et cetera. Um, and when I was in school, it was the cultural competency. But, um, yeah, I think really, really more nuanced discussions are happening now, which is really cool. Um, so I think it's getting better and better, if that answers your question. But I don't know exactly how it is now. I, I think a lot of it depends on where you are and what your training is. Um, I know when I was at the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics conference a couple of years ago, there were a couple um, programs that either med students or residents were doing at their training places that were exactly the same as training programs that I remember us putting in place, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and it kind of, that made me a little sad about that things hadn't changed in some areas. Um, but I think there now are places that it's getting there. I, I would guess it's actually a, one of those curves where there's great and there's horrible and there's not a lot in between. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's just a guess, just a guess though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it, it's interesting when you talk about the whole, the passing part, um, is I remember I had a couple of times in my med school and residency tenure where I had patients say something to someone else. Um, I remember one, I was on call and there was a family that's like, um, we're not going to see a the F word for being gay doctor. Hmm. Um, and I kind of vaguely heard it, but I was, you know, in that kind of dream state that you're in for a lot of residency when you're on call all the time. Uh, <laughs> and the senior resident I was on with was a black woman. And I remember she was like, she just kind of moved me out. And afterwards I was like, wait, what happened? And she was like, she was so protective of me and was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. They're taking care of you. Did nothing wrong. Um, and it was really, and it was, it was really. I mean, it was. I was so lucky to have her there to yeah. be like, this isn't you. This is this is someone else. Yeah. Um, sad, sadly, I'm sure that's because she had experienced the same thing more than once. Right. Right. Um, and. And I still, and it wasn't, and I was not even in the era where people were wearing rainbow stickers and pins on their name tags and stuff. Um, I think it was just, I might have had bleached hair then. Probably ble maybe bleached hair and a tattoo that was showing out the bottom of my scrubs. That may have, maybe that's what the tip off was. <laughs> I'm like, you have a tattoo? I want to know. Yes, I need to see this. <laughs> Where? On my shoulder. I, it was showing off my scrubs. <laughs> oh, now I'm picturing that, like, I bent over to pick something up off the ground, and, like, she saw a tattoo on my lower back. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> no, I only have one on my shoulder. <sighs> oh, my think, goodness. 
I think that that must be disheartening when you are trying to provide care. And because I'm assuming, because I'm not a doctor, I'm assuming you go into that profession for altruistic reasons, right? Like you want, you see yourself as somebody who's able to provide care and you want to help communities and you want to help patients. And then to feel bias come back at you must feel disheartening in some sort of way. Can you, I don't know, am I off or can you explain that more? What did that feel like? I don't know. I think it was one of those things where it's disheartening for a minute, but then there's something else that's that's actually bigger and more important that's happening right. um, that would call my attention. Um, and I don't know. For me, the biggest challenge when I hear something like that is I'm like, I when I treat someone, it does not matter. None of those things matter to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try um, to meet people where they are. Um, I have, you know, I have religious families I work with who I will say to them, yeah, you'll be in my prayers with this. Um, I have families who, you know, all sorts of different sorts of things that aren't my personal beliefs, but where I try to answer them in a way that'll be meaningful for them. Yeah. I don't know. Jamie, what did you, have you been in any of those situations where you've felt some bias and how did you respond? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think especially uh, like what your senior did with your instance is really important. I had a case where taking care of a Latino man in residency and I was like the one white person on this team of actually all women of color, including our attending physician. And this Latino man, this person of color said, well, I really want like a white Jewish doctor. And we all kind of looked around and said, what? Like, <laughs> what is this guy talking about? But, you know, I think it takes the person on the team. So, you know, I said, you know, you have a great team of physicians taking care of you. And if you have any concerns, you can let me know. Um, but at this hospital, this is the team that's taking care of you today. And if you want to be transferred to a different team, you can let me know. But I think you do need to have someone on the team who basically says, you know, you kind of deflect it from the patient in some way, but also kind of if there are learners or students or other residents with you or interns, you do need to kind of set the stage for them that this is a safe place for them to be a learner too, right? Right. You know, we right. don't tolerate harassment um, or violence or, or anything like that or abuse of healthcare staff, which happens a lot, unfortunately. But I think you're right that in general, you know, if someone had said something to me as a patient uh, or uh, when I'm, you know, if it's anti-LGBT, you know, I'll probably just, if I'm alone, I just file it away um, because you're right. We take care of all walks of life. And, you know, I try not to let that impact the care that I'm going to give that person. Um, yeah. Medicine is just, is just interesting. Yeah, you meet all walks yeah. of life, so oh, yeah. you just try to blink and not let it phase you. And if, like I said, if it's around other learners who it could be an unsafe environment for them, then I think you need to lay some ground rules. But. You know what the thing is that's fascinating that, with that, though, is that you and I, it sounds like, and a lot of us, we have the training that you, you know, and I think it starts in anatomy class when you are on the inside of a body and you're like, all these bodies are the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. then, um, and then to hear that there are doctors who don't really believe that and don't act that way mm-hmm. is just incredible to me. Like, I don't know how you could witness surgery or childbirth and think that people are really that different from one another. 
I also think it's really interesting how people are concerned about your sexuality and or identity. Like I was, I, that was, I did not think about that at all when I met you. Like it, I wasn't like trying to process your personal life, Dr. Cronin. I was more like, I was more like we're in this high stress situation. Our child, we, our child ha, um, has socially transitioned and we need a doctor who can like guide us because we feel really lost in terms of like a plan, a medical plan and like help, right? And so like that was not even in my like front of mind. And the second that you told me you understand like that you like, if I, the second you were like, uh, you know, Vapuru, I was like, we have made it to like the heaven home place. He gets Mexican culture. We're totally safe. like. I just wasn't thinking like, hmm, I wonder what his sexuality is. You know what I mean? Like, I find it really interesting uh, that people are um, so concerned with that. Like, I just wanted a safe place for my kid to get care. Because um, we'd been in that in-between where we'd been with a pediatrician who wanted to provide care, but just didn't know how to, they seemed nervous, right? And like, you don't want to go to a doctor who's nervous about providing yeah. care. Um, yeah. Cause you're like, well, maybe, For anything. yeah, you're just like, uh, okay. You're out of your, this is out of your depth. And so I have to find someone else. Um, yeah. well meaning, but just didn't know. Um, so I find it interesting that people would have like such, a, like such like descriptive need of a specific doctor. What I will say for me, I haven't found a doctor um for myself and sometimes i wish that i had because most of the doctors i've gone to don't have that cultural competency and i I i'm always trying to like measure whether i'm being like like judged by certain things because i've had like conversations with like where i'm trying to establish care that i'm like i don't know what they're thinking and this feels uncomfortable and they're asking questions that actually don't relate to me or my experience so that's kind of where I've been, where I'm like, it would be nice to have a woman of color as my physician because she would get it or something, you know, or maybe and I will find you things. one. <laughs> I'm going to find you one like tomorrow. Yeah. Or like, just not assume, <laughs> like not assume certain things. Right. Because you're like, uh, no, actually, that's not my experience or, um, yeah. you know, I don't know. But having yeah. a doctor, you want to trust them. And you would hope they would trust you in return, I guess. Yeah, there's a number of excellent women of color physicians I can think of it that immediately came to mind in Tucson. So, yes, we should talk offline if you <laughs> would like a, a list. There's definitely a long list of those here. So. I'm like, where yeah. are they? And, and not a small number of them are ones no. who are from Tucson mm-hmm. and who stuck around um and so yeah lots of options um i remember when i first moved to Houston, i was actually surprised because the there were two or three pediatric surgeons who were all women um when i first moved here and i was like so surprised um and yeah um so what about, so after med school, what about residency interviews? Um, there's always a discussion among residents about like, 
do I come out? Do I not come out? If I come out, is there a reason for it? Things like that. Yeah, um, that's a good question. Like, what did you, what, what, what was your experience? What do you recommend to trainees? Um, well, I have to say, I, I think I told you, I wrote a paper about this. <laughs> um, I actually in, ended up, we did a research study where we just, um, it's under, uh, it's under publication review, so it should probably be out pretty soon. Um, we did a survey and looked at people's experiences. And um, so I'm definitely interested in this topic as well. Um, and the thing that I noticed is that, yes, there, I figured there was going to be discrimination, but I was going to be there for three years. And I was told when I was interviewing for residency, I think this is good advice for any intense job, that you need to think about the program where you want to be there like on the worst day of your life because that day will probably be in residency because you're working 80 hours a week and it's incredibly stressful and not only are you new and you don't know very much but you have an incredible amount of responsibility and you're really tired so yeah. i knew that i needed them to accept me and that i didn't want to go to a program where i wasn't going to feel accepted so i was out i was 100 percent out on my application and I think I just sort of banked on the fact that it was going to work, but I didn't really have confirmation of that. I just assumed it would. Um, and I think the fact that I was applying into family medicine, family medicine is very progressive in general. Um, and so it was a total blessing. It was like a boon to my application. It was seen as a very positive thing. Program directors brought it up. They thought it was really cool that I was so out and that I had done some research in trans health and that I was wanting to kind of be an advocate for this population. So it was 100% a positive thing. I will say I have a number of transgender friends who are uh, transgender women and their experience was very negative by being out. Yeah. And I think it's just that, you know, the iron fist of sexism comes out yeah. yet again. And so yeah. transgender women have that, you know, double or triple minority status where they had a lot of discrimination. I know transgender women who didn't match or who were scrambling for positions. And I mean, these are people who were like AOA, like ridiculously qualified, published like excellent GPA, you know, smarter than I am. And they're scrambling for these positions that they really didn't deserve or they didn't match. And then I had another friend who reapplied closeted and got in instantaneously. Um, so I would not say that my experience is universal. The transgender men that I know who were out did pretty well. But again, I think it's just sexism. And uh, it's just different to be a trans woman than a trans man still, man still which is really unfortunate. I think so, too. Yeah. I think there's so much bias against trans women. And it's... It feels more daunting, I think, um, when you think about like how you advocate, um, especially because the hate groups focus so much on that and the stereotypes around trans women. Um, and so it's just, it's disheartening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, trans men, we're sort of like invisible, you know, <laughs> I mean, like people don't really notice us or, you know, you know you're, you're coming out and. Um, so yeah, you can kind of fly out of the radar, but when I interviewed, I was out, I had some negative experiences. Don't get me wrong. I was interested in doing a more rural family medicine program. I had one program director talk to me for under 60 seconds and then told me he didn't need to talk to me anymore. Um, needless to say, I ranked that program very low. Um, I was pretty sure it was anti-LGBT bias that, cause normally those interviews just for context was that they're like 15, 20 minutes long. And yeah. he talked to me for under a minute and then refused to keep talking to me. So I assumed that that was that reason. Um, I had another interview at a program in Texas where 
you know, they, they said that doing transgender medicine was going to be really controversial and was I ready for that? And I was like, oh, God, don't need to come here. <laughs> but most programs like the Phoenix, Tucson programs, the New Mexico programs, they just thought it was so cool. And a lot of them were trying to do trans health anyway. Yeah. So having a resident who was kind of interested in that was helpful for their program, too. Um, and I actually interviewed in pediatrics and family medicine, and both of those specialties were really friendly. Hmm. That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I even when I interviewed, so it's, you know what's interesting? I don't know if I had told you this. It's my, so my med school interviews, I was, I was a late student, and so I applied to a lot of places. And I think I had like 19 or 20 interviews. And I wow. had not come out in any of them. Um, and I got waitlisted at almost every single school. Um, either waitlisted or rejected. And the first school that I came out in my interview was the one I ended up going to at Albert Einstein. Um, and and it's interesting. And I had every reason to come out. I mean, I had been doing AIDS prevention work for a few years before that. <laughs> and like, I, but I found myself totally censoring that out of my conversation. <laughs> They're like, yeah, I've been out, you know, giving classes on HIV prevention and I've been, you know, uh, helping with a clean needle program and didn't mention any of that. And then, but then when I came out and I can talk about anything, I think it changed, changed a lot. Um, although I know a lot of the discussions with gay and lesbian people interviewing for med school, it's probably true with trans people as well, is that you need to figure out a reason for why you're, um, why you're expressing it, why you are, why you're coming out during an interview. Um, and that it's, if you're like a gay white man who might as well be a straight white man, um, there's probably no reason to, to come out because it won't, it doesn't add anything to who you are. Right. Which, which I feel very sorry for those people. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm like, God, if coming if coming out is such a minor thing that it really doesn't matter in your life, there's something missing. Yeah. Drew, I think that there's research to suggest, and I don't remember the exact study, but this is sort of overall, like, in the workplace. So LGBT people, um, when they come out, are, I think, more likely to be promoted and kind of do well professionally. And the hmm. thought process behind that was kind of like what you were saying – you know, being LGBT may or may not be a big part of someone's life, but it probably is if you have a partner or something like that. And, you know, colleagues yeah. kind of ask what you do over the weekend and you're censoring yourself and people can kind of tell maybe there's something missing there in terms of what you're disclosing. And so I think that professionally they do say that you could, like kind of your experience where you got in when you came out that if it is a big part of your life and you're censoring yourself, then yeah, something may be missing. Um, yeah. You know, that ought to say so many instances where it's not safe to be out as a trans person, right? Yeah. Hopefully a medical school or a residency interview is a safe place to be out, you know? For Pete's sakes, you're interviewing for a professional graduate medical education program, right? You certainly hope that's a safe place. But um, I do know one of my friends who was uh, transgender um, did not come out because they were applying to surgery and mm. really felt that surgery was not ready for a transgender person. And they matched not being out, and they did very, very well. And so I have to respect what, what they know about that program and that maybe it's not um, something that you can be out about with that specialty. Yeah. I don't know. 
I think, you know, it's it's fascinating to me the number of uh, gay surgeons in a Facebook group for gay men, gay male doctors that I'm in, because when I was in training, surgery, if you were anything that wasn't straight, white, upper middle class man, you were an anomaly. Um, and so I think, I, I hope that things eventually change. Um, I yeah, I and I recently interviewed a, a resident who had some pretty horrific experiences in med school um, after coming out as trans, and it really it just amazes me because if you can have that experience, then what is that school teaching? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I know you have done like a lot of different research. <laughs> you you're you're one of those publishing machines from what I've seen so far. Um, what, like, what, can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the topics you've done and why you did them and what things need to be researched still and yeah, you know, totally. be more than an hour or two's worth of conversation. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely not a publishing machine. I remember when I applied to medical school, I didn't have any research and I just said, oh, well, I kind of hate research. You know, I didn't, didn't really want it. It's all like boring bench work. I didn't want to do any of that. But then when I was in medical school, I realized that there was no research on transgender health. And that's, you know, very minimal research. I mean, compared to any other topic in medicine, there's just so little research. And I think that whether we like it or not, published research legitimizes a topic. Mm -hmm. So the more research that you have on transgender health, the more you're legitimizing that as um, a true medical evidence-based specialty and practice of medicine. And that, no, these are not just rogue you know, cowboy doctors in Tucson, Arizona doing trans health and pediatrics, right? right? But this is a real thing that's evidence-based and it has evidence behind it. Um, So, you know, things like we know that the rate of transgender people after they get uh, gender-affirming surgery, every year for like the next eight or 10 years, the rate of them seeking mental health services like therapy and counseling, I think goes down by like 10% each year. You know, stuff like studies like that that show that, yes, this helps, that hormone therapy decreases depression and anxiety and all of those other things. So that's why I tried to do some research. I had a friend um, who um, was interested in chest binding in medical school, and we ended up publishing a lot of different papers. We just published another one in pediatrics that talks about basically characteristics of people who chest bind who are transgender or gender nonconforming. And it was funny, there was literally not a single published paper on transgender chest binding among transmasculine or masculine spectrum um, people um, ever, literally ever. The only thing that we could find in the published research Drew and Lizette was about like breast binding after breastfeeding, like trying to not, you know, yeah, like limiting milk production. Very interesting. Right. And um, what other topic are you going to find in medicine? And that was 2017 or maybe 2016, 2015, five years ago that there was not a single published paper on it. I mean, that was just like blew my mind. Right. Yeah. So we just did a paper on it and we didn't really know what we were doing. We just said we called it the Biden Health Project. We had zero monies from anybody at all. It was totally unfunded <laughs> student research. And we just put up a survey monkey. I think we bought a survey monkey account for like forty dollars. And um, we got over 2,000 responses from people, just a self-made survey that we created that said, what is your experience when you chest bind? And then we got a really cool stats guru who, she is a publishing machine. Her name is Sarah Peitzmeyer. She has done so much research now in transgender health. It's incredible. Um, and she is a statistician guru. And we asked her to look at the data and say, can you find any statistically significant trends? And really the only trends that we found was that 
a couple of things. One, people who use chest binders that are professional chest binders, kind of like almost medical grade, those people have the most side effects of chest binding. Um, really? Chest binding being the, the compression of breast tissue to create a masculine chest, right? And that's because probably those chest binders are made to bind. So they're tight. So the tighter something that you wear, you know, the more side effects that you are going to have. Most people chest bound with things that they already own, which makes sense because cheaper. So like multiple sports bras or shirt laying, layering, things like that. Most of the side effects was like skin or like musculoskeletal pain. Um, a couple people had things like rib fracture. That was like the most uh, significant uh, response. The thing that was correlated with less self-reported side effects, which of course it's all self-reported, so it's not like the best, you know, ideal form of research. It's not a double-blind randomized controlled trial, whatever. Um, the the best thing that helped people was to take a day off from binding. So mm-hmm. if people only bound six days a week instead of seven. Um, that would help them have less symptoms. But, you know, things like that where we were just curious because we knew patients and, and, and friends and, and partners and things like that who were chest binding, and we didn't know what to tell them. Like, what is the recommendation? There was all this sort of quote-unquote anecdotal stuff on YouTube, but it wasn't like, that's not based in any research. So, well, you know, I don't normally tell patients things that aren't based in research. Well, and the, yeah, the whole 8 to 10 hours thing is just kind of out of the air, isn't it? Oh, that's just random. Yeah. Well, so much in medicine, we just kind of, you know, randomly select. Like you're going to be at work maybe eight to 10 hours. And so that's the most you should kind of thing or at school or. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we, we gave that recommendation of taking a day off in the week and saying, you know, most of us were either trans allies or trans ourselves. And we said, look, we get it. If you can't take a day off from binding because of your mental health, we get it. The other cool thing that we did was we said on a survey of like, I don't know, zero to five, whatever it was, rate your mental health before and after, like how good you felt, how good you felt pre-binding and after binding. The jump in people's self-reported mental health when they were binding was incredible. It's like, it went from like a two to like a five or something. So it's like really improved mental health. It would be really interesting to see like how the pandemic for those people who've been allowed to, for trans masculine people who've been able and fortunate enough to work from home, whether that has lessened because they're not going anywhere, right? Like Uh there's no need to wear it. And so how they are feeling, um, whether they're still binding or not, it'd be really interesting to know that. Like I know um, I've talked to a lot of women who are like, I haven't worn a bra this entire time that we've been in this pandemic. or, but, but I have like every day. Right. Um, so it'd be interesting to hear kind of too, like how the pandemic will change people's practice regard with regards to like how they're binding and dressing and kind of experiencing the pandemic, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, the other paper drew that I did was I was a medical student working with an endocrinologist who is Really, he's also a publishing powerhouse. His name is Joshua Sapert. He's a really good endocrinologist. He was at BU. Now he's up in New York um, directing a transgender center for health, Joshua Safer. And um, okay. Yeah. So we did a paper. I did a paper with him where I just did like a big lit review of all the literature, and he helped me out with it a lot. And we basically – that was this – published paper we said hormone therapy is safe with provider monitoring, which is sort of the catchphrase that I talked to you all about, right? two things that everyone thinks that transgender hormones are going to do is number one, they're going to kill you or number two, they're going to give you cancer. And the research proves that both of them are not true. 
So when I have a patient walk in, I say, okay, your mother or your family and friends or whoever has told you don't transition because you're going to get cancer or you're going to die or both. And I say, both of those things are not true. And then they kind of breathe a sigh of relief and they kind of laugh and they say, yeah, I figured that wasn't true, but that's what everyone's scare tactics were. And I say, okay, they're not, it's not going to kill you and it's not going to give you cancer, so what questions do you have now? And then we kind of start the discussion, right? But that was just a lit review that we did. And there's a lot of really good research, as you know, with pediatrics, but also with the adult population coming out of the Netherlands. And they follow a lot of transgender people. And what they see is that, you know, morbidity, mortality, yeah, there is a slight increase of mortality for transgender women, but it's not associated with the hormone therapy. It's associated with discrimination, you know, suicide, HIV, AIDS, things like that. But it's not associated with the actual medical piece of hormones. It's so interesting yeah. that you mentioned this because did either of you watch Disclosure on Netflix? Yeah. No. They talk about this, that the, the trans women who were um, being interviewed for Disclosure talk about how their characters were like on Grey's Anatomy or some other medical show. And their storyline was either that the hormones were killing them or that they got cancer because of the hormones, right? And so if you think about the way bias is kind of like infused, I mean, I guarantee you this patient probably, like grandma was watching Grey's Anatomy and watched a whole episode about this trans woman dying because of her medicine, right? Um, It's so important the things that people see or like just because people believe these medical shows as if they're like real. We know they're not, right? Grey's is not reality. But like, what? You know? (laughs) Everyone in my school was totally that hot that they were all sleeping together. Right? Um, But like, you know, poor mom is like watching Grey's and is terrified and then sharing this like misinformation with their child or whatever. It's funny that you mentioned that because that was a big thing that they talked about in Disclosure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things, and I don't know how much you do this, Drew, you know, a lot of um, marginalized identities are sort of visually obvious, right? Whether you're a woman or a person of color, but being gay or transgender is not always immediately apparent. So you're Mm -hmm. kind of forced to come out. And with Usually with patients, you're kind of taught in medical school um, just to be more private, that the visit's really not about you. You have such a limited time anyway, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So you're not going to just go talk about your life the whole time with them. But with transgender patients, I almost universally come out to all of them. And I think that that just, gosh, it really, I don't know how I would do transgender medicine if I wasn't transgender because it really just sort of like, you know, the person kind of breathes a sigh of relief and you can say, you know, I obviously do not know your experience. I need you to tell me what that is. But like, I promise you that I'm really on your side. And yeah. I think so many transgender people don't feel that when they walk into a clinic. Myself, I went to a clinic when I first got to Tucson thinking, you know, silly me that I could just walk into any clinic as a transgender person and get good care. And then like, I was told by this person that like, I needed to go see an endocrinologist. And I was like, oh, well, actually, I'm a family doctor. And, you know, you don't need a specialist. And, you know, I can actually walk you through how you're going to order labs. I can walk you through the hormone doses. Like, I'd be happy to teach this to you, actually. But, you know, this poor resident just was like overwhelmed and flustered. And <laughs> I think both that person and their attending were not familiar. And so, um, you know, most Did you of them- break a resident? <laughs> well, UCSF did this study a while ago saying that 50% of transgender people had to teach their providers about yep. their own health, which is insane. Like people yeah. with diabetes, I wouldn't expect them to teach me how to give insulin. And they may be familiar with it at that point because it's their experience, but on a new diagnosis, they shouldn't have to teach you. So transgender care shouldn't be any different. Um, so I think just being able to put out there, hey, I'm transgender and 
you know, kind of joking with them a little bit, which maybe I wouldn't do that if, if I wasn't trans. But so for example, one of the things that I tell Drew a lot too is like, um, people will tell me, Oh, well, I'm not happy. You know, trans women may say, well, I want bigger breasts or a trans man will say, well, you know, I want the genital growth downstairs to be larger. And I just tell them like, welcome to the world of being a woman or welcome to the world of being a man. Like, your breasts and your penis size are not as large as you wanted them to be, or, you know, you're not, you're not a hundred percent satisfied with them, but this is a process of normal body image that everyone goes through. Yeah. And of course, adding on the transgender component is, it is a lot different in many ways, but we can kind of joke about that. And then they kind of realize like, Oh yeah, that's right. Like, you know, whatever the societal perception of what perfect is, or, you know, air quotes, that's, that's a perception. That's not reality. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of joke about stuff like that too, which is kind of cool. And I, you know, and it's really, I mean, what I have seen is that, I mean, of course, transgender boys are boys, transgender girls are girls, is I see exactly the same body issues, social issues um, going on, and then a plus because of being transgender, but that are cis and transgender people, and this is the same thing, I actually, I steal this quote from Pazette's son is that in the overall personality, most of the time being transgender is, if it was the United States, it would be Rhode Island. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's just a small part of who they are. um, And that most of the problems that come up are just people problems. And that Mm -hmm. a lot of, for a lot of cisgender doctors need to just get past that. But, you know, as doctors, we need to get past that with a lot of things. Um, I mean, your other specialty that you work in with medically assisted therapy, a lot of those people, they walk in and they're like, my foot hurts. And they're like, "Mm mm-hmm, yes, because addicts have feet that hurt. And you're like, no, no, they don't. (laughs) Right, right. Yes, yes. When we have patients who use heroin and we treat them with medication-assisted treatment for Suboxone, somehow it's always the Suboxone. I had this one guy in the ICU who was hypotensive and um, had an infection and uh, the physician came to me and said, well, I think it's the Suboxone that you started. And I said, I think he's septic from his infection. <laughs> we start Suboxone all of the time in the outpatient setting and their blood pressure does not drop to, you know, 70 over 40. I do not think it's the Suboxone, but it's like you said, it's like, oh, well, everything has to be related to being transgender. Everything has yep. to be related to um, the fact that they're on this medication for a substance use disorder and not really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like when you have a trans woman come in who says, well, should I change my estrogen dose or my progesterone dose for breast growth? Yeah, yeah, we can change it, but there's also that process of, you know, just like you said, you know, a lot of people have a, have a you know, different conception of their body image and things like that, and it's not always related to being trans. Yeah, yeah. And it's something, I mean, and I actually, body image, I talk about all, it's mo- a lot of it is with girls because there is so much pressure on them. And I think that's something else, you know, trans women, it's the same thing. It's this pressure of what society has made women look like. Um, And so, I mean, with my patients, like women of color, and I'm like, you know what? That All those white girls with those collarbones showing in those pictures, that's not you. It's not supposed to be you. It wouldn't be healthy if it was you. Um, And it just, it's, it's, bias can just hit so widely, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I remember there was a time when, like, Daniel was, like, obsessed with his calves and just, like, staring at cis boys' calves and being like, my calves are not as big as theirs. Um, And then we have a friend who was, like, 
you know, is um, non-binary trans masculine. And they were like, here is what things you can do, Daniel, to like kind of create some calf muscle. Like there's some pragmatic things, but at the same time, like we all have different sizes. And I think it was helpful to have someone who was sharing in that experience to just be like, here's some little things. And if you keep skateboarding, right, you're going to, you're going to, your legs are going to get muscular, but that shouldn't be like the hyper focus. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. I remember when I, when I transitioned, I distinctly felt less pressure physically, right? Like, like, as you know, a woman from the time that she wakes up in the morning <laughs> to the end of the day needs to look like effortlessly perfect. And then if she doesn't, it's like, are you sick? Is something wrong? Was there a death in the family? Like, you know, you can't, you can't, whereas like a dude, you just like roll out of bed with like, yep. kind of slept over to your classes or your work or whatever. And it's just like, everything is fine. And no one asks you, you know, why you didn't iron your shirt that day. So I distinctly felt less pressure in that sense of no longer being a woman. But I would say that, yeah, it takes, it took me so many years to be okay with myself and then you know, realizing like, oh, yeah, you know, you, you look fine and you're like your regular dude and whatever, whatever that even means, you know, normal's what's normal to you. But yeah, it took forever to have that process of self-acceptance, but it may just be time too, like you said, and then, you know, having good mentors who tell you, no, it's not really about that. Yeah. Yep. Um, so we are cutting close to time and I promised oh. Drew that in season two, we would stay at the hour. <laughs> or oh, at least did we? Try okay, to. yeah. Um, so it's getting close, and I feel like I still have a lot more questions. So maybe we can have you on again. Um, and but Drew, did you want, or we can pause and continue, whatever the comfort level is. We should probably just do our. We have our final questions. Yay! Which okay. I didn't tell Jamie, so he doesn't know what they're gonna be. Oh wow! Okay, it's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> like, the first one. Oh my goodness! So the first one is: What are a couple of things that you do to sort of build community um, and to try and like broaden the community that you're in um, in your life? That's a good question. Yeah. I notice that the times where I'm more involved with the transgender community, I feel distinctly healthier and happier. Mm -hmm. um, so even if that's as superficial as going to a drag show, you know, just something uh, or, or more meaningful, like going to a transgender support group and hearing other people's experiences, I try to do something that's LGBT related. It does feel good to be connected with the community because yeah, it's not one of those communities that you necessarily are going to always bump into in your day-to-day -day life. Um, so it's nice to be connected to the trans community or even just having friends who are not transgender but who are allies and being able to be open with them. You know, different at different points in my life, I was not always able to be open around groups of people. So having friends where I can just nonchalantly bring up something about being trans is, is really cool. So. Awesome. I agree. Um, I think community is like essential always i have to say every time we get done with this podcast i feel more connected uh, <laughs> which is one of the reasons we keep doing it i know um exciting. and then the second question is who uh is somebody who you admired this week i admired this week oh gosh um 
this was, oh, I wish you had told me this before. I would, I would think about it. Um, this I is was, a hard week because there was a lot to admire this week. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel like I should say something about the election. I think what I would say, though, is just all of the, you know, physicians and nurses that I work with, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, because it has just been a really hard time to be a doctor and to be a healthcare provider or professional with COVID and all the other stressors that we're under and things. So I would probably just say my colleagues. Awesome. And um, what about you, Lizette? Who's someone you admire this week? So in the advocacy work I do, I, I think it's always so important to like center our children and not center parents, right? Um, but this week I felt really connected to the larger parent community um, because, and kind of, I want to say that I admire them this week because in the middle of all the things that happened under the last administration, you had a flurry of families that really stepped in and created uh, resources, visibility, really pushed back on on anti-trans policy for youth um, in a time when you would have thought that they would recoil and be more afraid to be out. Um, so I just, I'm, I'm, I admire people who are willing to show up and push back and keep pushing for progress, even when it feels overwhelming and exhausting and insurmountable. Awesome. Wow. Um, well, I can't use Rachel Levine because I've already used her once. <laughs> but I'm going to go with the election. And I'm sorry, how can we admire anyone more than a self-described uh, 22-year-old, skinny little black girl yes. raised by a single mom. I mean, that poem. I, I'm i a little more than 22 years old, and I have never written anything that beautiful. And I have, the political podcast I listen to is by Obama speechwriters. I mean, and he had incredible speeches. And listen to them, and they're like, I've never written anything that good. I've never written anything that's so tried to say, you know, we're here, we're not changing, we all need to come together, but to treat each other equally when we do it. I was, I mean, Amanda and, Gordon just blew me away. And to give us better language, right? Yes. Because I feel like, this is the one thing I had a conversation with my husband about, my spouse. Um, he was like, do you feel American again? And I was like, I always feel American, but I'm deeply aware that there are instances where white Americans do not view me as American. And I think I think that it doesn't that it's not that we're unpatriotic. It's that it's frustrating to be part of a larger a larger to be part of a nation that doesn't value you. Right. And yeah. it was beautiful to have her give language to what that is. Right. We're not seeking a perfect union. Right. No. But seeking to um, I forget her words, but I already pre-ordered her book on Amazon. <laughs> I, I was like, is she going to be my person that I admire this week? But I'm glad you mentioned Amanda Gorman because she was, gosh, phenomenal. 22. 22 years old. How I does someone do that when they're 22? I was such a loser in Trump's words uh, oh. at 22. 
Oh my gosh, uh, 22. Oh, oh, I just remembered 22. Yeah, no, that was not a good period of my life. 22 <laughs> was not my best year. <laughs> not my finest moment. Well, well, I guess that is today's I Stand With You. We'll be back in two weeks, as always. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. I do really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you. you and what I see you do for our patients as well. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'll always be happy to come back. Awesome. Yay, thank you All so right. much. Have a great right. day. Have a great night, guys.